All right, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, we have a very special guest. He's attorney John Clark, and he was very much involved in, uh, as a representative of somebody who's passed away, Patrick Knowlton, who was involved in the Vince Foster case and has done tons of work, has his uh, website right here on YouTube. People can check it out at fbicover-up.com. But he's going to talk more about that case. So, John Clark, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Thank you for awesome. having us on. When I say yeah. us, it's going to be me and uh, joined by Hugh Turley in a while. Right. And Hugh and I uh, have done two shows together. We covered uh, the investigation into Thomas Merton. And also, uh, he was involved with DC Dave on another uh, book about Vince Foster. So, a lot of people have done work. I also did another interview about the Vince Foster called. Uh, Hillary and Vince. So it was kind of a different kind of approach on that. But can you talk for people who don't know your background? Can you talk about um, how you got involved in the uh, suspicious death of Vince Foster? Uh, yes, I uh, an acquaintance and friend of mine was uh, Patrick Knowlton, and we live in the same uh, apartment building. And uh, that's how I got to know Patrick. I knew him, you know, fairly well just from uh, interaction with the building, a nice guy. And then he called me and said uh, that he had been subpoenaed and harassed um, to testify before the Whitewater Grand Jury. So uh, I missed his first call. And then on Friday, this was in 1995, in October of 1995, uh, he was subpoenaed on a Thursday. On a Friday evening, uh, I finally got back to him, went to visit him in his apartment building. And he told me this kind of the short story about what had happened to him. He was in Fort Marcy Park um, and nobody really paid much attention to what he had to say uh, until what turned out to be the second FBI investigation. And like I said, he was he was subpoenaed and harassed. And so in his apartment uh, at the time was Ambrose Evan Pritchard and Patrick Knowlton. So Patrick told me the story. So my first uh, reaction was, well, why don't you call the Washington Post? And uh uh, uh, Ambrose uh, rolled his eyes. Uh, he said, uh, that's, uh, <laughs> you know, he just rolled his eyes because I was sort of a uh, pretty green under the, uh, uh, pretty green when it comes to this, uh, you know, with the news media. So, um, and uh, William, I was hoping that we could play that uh, video. Uh, uh, let's talk a little bit about who Vince Foster was and then we play the video. It's got a really good background and your viewers will get an opportunity to meet Patrick Dalton because he's featured, of course, in the video. And he really does an excellent job at describing the intimidation and harassment that he suffered uh, uh, beginning the same day that he was subpoenaed to testify for the Whitewater Grand Jury. And of course, Whitewater, or excuse me, Grand Jury um, subpoenas, Grand Jury testimony is all secret. Nobody knew that Patrick had been uh, subpoenaed except for the Office of Independent Counsel um, and uh, the FBI. So, um, Sorry. Would you like me to play this video that you're seeing right here, the Vince Foster cover-up? I would, but uh, yeah, okay. let's talk a little bit about, because uh, a lot of your listeners may not uh, uh, be aware of who Vince Foster was. He was a deputy White House counsel under Bill Clinton during the first term, and he was uh, he died in July of 1993, so that's six months into the first uh, uh, Bill Clinton uh, 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 the first uh, Bill Clinton term. So, um, and he was found uh, in uh, Fort Marcy Park uh, with uh, apparently a gun in his hand. 
and it was uh, uh, quickly uh, uh, ruled a suicide. Now, for, for those of people who have lived through this, uh, they probably remember uh, being told over and over again by the news media uh, that it was a simple suicide, that it was a suicide. Uh, and they also have been told uh, that there have been five separate investigations. Now, we're going to go into that. There have not been five. There's been one long investigation by the FBI under different titles, uh, the Park Police and two independent councils, and Congress never looked into the, death, into the death, but we'll look into that too, although the news media has told you that Congress has looked into it. They haven't. So let me, um, uh, again, this is the highest ranking official to die under suspicious circumstances since the, uh, the murder of JFK, and nobody knows anything about it. And one of the uh, primary uh, um, uh, players uh, in this cover-up uh, was uh, Brett Kavanaugh. And I'm going to prove that uh, to you and to your listeners. And, I, and that's why I'm so happy that we can have a nice long show for two hours probably, um, because I can't prove to you and your listeners that Vince Foster was murdered and that uh, Brett Kavanaugh played a significant role in covering it up without this, uh, this amount of time. So again, I think... Uh, now that we know who Vince Foster was, let's uh, uh, play the video. It's 28 minutes, but it's really uh, very, very telling and very well done by way of telling the background of this of this case. And for people who don't know, Brett Kavanaugh was one of the researchers for the Star Report, so he interviewed he, a lot of different people. Yes, he was the uh, he was there was a his predecessor is named Miguel Rodriguez, and Miguel Rodriguez. Uh, was not going to go along with the cover-up, so he was forced out. And uh, so Starr replaced uh, um, uh, uh, Miguel Rodriguez with uh, Brett Kavanaugh. He was the head, uh, he was heading up uh, that particular uh, inquiry uh, under the auspices of the Office of, of Kenneth Starr's Office of Independent Counsel. Uh, let me, uh, uh, and I have been, over the years, I occasionally uh, give people notice and, and give them the proof uh, of this murder cover-up. And let's, let me just read you a couple of sentences from my most recent one, which was in was last year, January 6th of 2020. And this was to uh, five members of Congress and two alternate uh, uh, reporters, and uh, uh, not mainstream reporters. United States Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh played a significant role in covering up the 1993 murder of Deputy White House Counsel Vincent W. Foster. The proof of this accusation appears in the record in two courts, the Special Division of the United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit and the United States Supreme Court. The proof also appears in taped interviews and memoranda of U.S. Attorney Miguel Rodriguez, who served as Kenneth Starr's prosecutor in the Foster death probe from March 1994 until his resignation in, 19, in December of 1995. Rodriguez refused to participate in the FBI's murder cover-up. Starr replaced Rodriguez with Kavanaugh. So again, um, as I said, I'm very happy that we can uh, do this show and that you were uh, nice enough uh, to give me enough time to prove it to all of your listeners uh, exactly uh, uh, the, the truth. And I'm going to prove to you that it was a murder cover-up covered up by, uh, among others, um, Brett Kavanaugh. Gotcha. Shall I roll it? Roll tape? Yeah, I think so. Okay, let's do it. Do you hear the audio? I do not. 
Say that again. Do you hear the audio or not? Uh, I do not hear the audio. Okay, let me let me try it this way then. Let me take these things off. People that have been drawn into questioning the Foster case. Uh, Can you hear it now? Yes. Or the Washington Post, the Washington Times may not be looking at the best evidence. The best evidence hasn't been reported. And people like Patrick Knowlton, his story hasn't been told. On July 20th, uh, 1993, I stopped in the Fort Marcy Park at 4.30 p.m. in the afternoon. As soon as I pulled up into the lot, it's a driveway, I think it's about two-tenths of a mile long. The first thing I saw when I pulled up was this rust-brown square-backed vehicle with an Arkansas license plate. Patrick was uh, on his way home from uh, working a construction job in uh, suburban Maryland, backed up in traffic and he had to urinate. Um, so he pulled into Fort Marcy Park to do that, and it was 4.30 p.m. That's Tuesday, July 20th. And uh, he didn't know it, of course, at the time, but uh, Vince Foster was dead at the time that Patrick pulled into the park. Patrick is, uh, is a witness that, that could open up a very large can of worms. There are a lot of people uh, who would just as soon see him no longer exist. As I got up into where the actual level of the parking area was, I looked to my right, and there was a, a car parked there, a blue car. It was backed in. Um, because of the way the leaves were hitting the windshield, I couldn't tell if anybody was in either car at first. I just pulled up and I pulled into the uh, right-hand side of this brown car. And as I put my car in park, I looked to the right. And the passenger window of this car that was backed in just came down. And there was this Hispanic or Middle Eastern, I wasn't really sure of his, of his nationality, but there was this man who just gave me this look. Pat uh, got out of his car and uh, walked to start to walk into the uh, Fort Marcy Park you know, to find the, you know, the first large tree. And uh, as he did, he heard the guy, open, this guy who was parked, open his car door. So Pat was you know, a little bit nervous, and he, so he looked at this sign um, bordering Fort Marcy Park. And then I just looked over my shoulder to the right, and I saw this guy, he just like was leaning on his car and just staring at my head. Nothing else was staring directly at my face. So I walked up this very wide path, and I went to the left. Now, I didn't know that Vince Foster's body was to the right at the time. As he was on his way back, he heard the car door close, this man's car door. So he didn't know whether or not maybe the guy could be coming after him or if he'd gotten back in his car. So I became very cautious. And as I walked, as I approached the landing where you can see into the parking lot, I saw the brown Honda, my car, and I saw the blue car. And I didn't see the, this guy anywhere. So I thought, well, geez, maybe he's crossed down between the cars. or I just... Because he acted so strange, I was suspicious of the guy. So I walked right towards the, the door, the driver's side of the brown Honda, using that as like a buffer, because I figured, you know, it's just a little shield. And he just happened to remember uh, that the car was brown and um, that it was an older brown Arkansas car. Um, so as it turned out, uh, that was pretty significant because Mr. Foster's car uh, was a silver car. And as I walked, cautiously walked on the back of the car, you know, I looked and I saw that there was nobody crouched there, so I just had the, my keys in my hand. I unlocked my door, got in the car, closed the door, and locked my door with my elbow. And I look over, and down comes the window again. And this guy just looks out at me, so I just start my car, and I back out, and I leave. Patrick's account of what happened to him at the park is very important because uh, we know from the, from the forensic evidence that Vincent Foster was dead by 4.30 when Patrick uh, pulled into Fort Marcy Park. There were only two cars in the lot, neither of which belonged to Vincent Foster. So that's uh, uh, that's pretty important information. Uh, it, it just shoots the uh, suicide in the park theory uh, uh, completely 
to, to shreds. Patrick Knowlton is, is, the, is, a, is a crucial and pivotal witness in this case, and he was important to the authorities because at the very beginning, uh, he did not see Mr. Foster's car at the park. It was important for them to establish that he did. This is CNN's Prime News. The top stories this hour. In an apparent suicide, White House lawyer Vince Foster was found dead last night. President Clinton. So um, I turn the TV on and I kick back and 11 o'clock news comes on. The first thing on the news is, you know, yesterday Vince Foster's body was found at Fort Marcy Park and his body was discovered at 6 o'clock and I was like, wow, I was there at 4.30 and his car was there. I saw this guy's car. This is what I'm thinking to myself, this White House guy. So Patrick called the U.S. Park Police and reported what he had seen. And um, uh, that was it. I mean, nobody came to see him and and he just reported what he'd seen over the telephone. And then it was uh, in uh, April of 1994, so this is nine months after um, uh, Mr. Foster's death, that Patrick was contacted and interviewed by uh, two FBI agents, uh, Larry Monroe and William Colum Bell. And towards the last 45 minutes of the interview, he pulled out, opened his desk and he pulled out some, um, some photographs. And they, I could tell they were Polaroids. And they were upside down. He was sort of shuffling them as he talked to me. And I, you know, I kept looking down to see if he was shuffling. And he said, no, I want to talk about this car again. And what they tried to do was they tried to get Patrick to admit that the car that he saw in the park uh, could have been Mr. Foster's newer 1989 uh, silver gray uh, Honda. And it wasn't. It was, uh, you know, the car that Patrick saw was, uh, was a brown car. And then he starts flipping them all over and he's saying, are you sure? Are you positive this is not the car you saw? The Arkansas license place. Couldn't this have been the car? This could have been the car. Couldn't it have been? He kept using all that terminology. If he wanted me to say, well, it could have been. But I kept saying, no, that wasn't the car of the Arkansas license place. The car of the Arkansas license place was older and brown and um, looked nothing like this car. And I said, uh, I said, is that Mr. Foster's car? And he goes, well, I don't know, Mr. Nolan. Didn't you see Mr. Foster's car? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, what did Mr. Foster's car look like? And I said, it was a brown, older car. And that's when I made the statement. It didn't look like a car an attorney would drive, from, you know, in my vision. A lot of people, I think, uh, could have been frightened away. Uh, or would have just rolled over and said, yes, that may have been the car I saw. And that's all the FBI wanted him to say, was that it might have been, could have been a gray Honda, 1989. And uh, most people might have just gone on with their lives, and, and the FBI would have been happy. and satisfied that Foster's car was there at 4.30. It didn't happen. And finally they said, you know, I'm not going to change my story. This is what I saw. This is not the car I saw. And, you know, that's all I can say about it. And then um, 18 months after that, so now we're talking 27 months after the death, um, in October of 1995, Patrick was contacted and interviewed by Ambrose Evans Pritchard. And um, I started telling him the story, and I was into about, Five minutes of it, and he interrupted me and said, are you telling me the truth? Ambrose was, at the time, the uh, uh, Washington, D.C. bureau chief for the London Sunday Telegraph. And I said, well, yeah, I'm telling you the truth. He says, well, have you ever read your statements that the uh, that when you gave them to the FBI? And I said, no. When the FBI interviews you, it's, a, it's just an interview report. It's not like a witness statement. Uh, the witness doesn't get to see it or initial it or sign it or anything like that. I sat down in a chair in his office and he handed me some papers that said FBI on top and I start reading it. And I realized that I'm reading my stuff, my statements that are now typed up. I knew they were handwritten notes, 
now it's typed up and I'm reading it and I'm saying, well, I didn't say that. And that's not true. And I'm saying this stuff out loud. And an article appeared in the London Telegraph on uh, the tw Sunday, the 22nd uh, of October, 1995, uh, saying that Patrick was stunned when he, when he saw these FBI interview reports and uh, that they contained outright lies. But on the 21st, Ambrose called me on the phone and said, you know, I'm doing an article for the newspaper and I'm afraid it might jeopardize you, your life possibly. Now that uh, article uh, appeared in U.S. newsstands on uh, uh, Tuesday, October 24th, 1995. So this article comes out and then of course on Tuesday we get on the newsstand and pay the six ninety-five for the Sunday Telegraph and open it up and there is my name in print, which is the first time I've ever seen anything like it, and this story about how I said the FBI lied, how Ken Starr never called me before his grand jury, or Ken Starr uh, never interviewed me, um, and uh, the picture of the guy that I saw in the park, Amber said, could this be the murder? This is this a picture of Hillary and Vince Foster and my name, and I'm just like, it was sort of surreal, and I, I was like, why would the guy write a story like this? But as I read the story, it was all true. Once I was able to accept that, you know, it was a newspaper article that was in another country, then I wasn't so worried about that. Well, who's going to see this, you know? And um, lo and behold, Ken Starr and his and his um, and his crew um, obviously were monitoring Ambrose Evans Pritchard's articles. That day, the Office of Independent Counsel, Mr. Starr's office, uh, prepared a subpoena for Patrick to testify before the Whitewater Grand Jury the following week, Wednesday, November 1st. The person who served in the subpoena was Russell Bransford, who was an FBI agent who had worked for Robert Fisk, uh, worked for Ken Starr, and possibly was involved in the 16-day police investigation, the initial investigation. I'm not sure of that, but I, I think I think yes, I would say it probably was. This was, of course, a secret subpoena. These grand jury proceedings are secret. No one knows about them except for the FBI and the Office of Independent Counsel. So uh, Patrick uh, uh, received his subpoena on Thursday mornings, a little after 10 a.m., uh, from uh, uh, Agent Bransford, Russell Bransford. And Bransford gave uh, Patrick his business card and said, if you have any problems, uh, give me a call. So um, beginning that same day, Patrick was harassed on the streets of Washington. On October 26, 1995, after I served the subpoena by Russell Bransford, I um, called my girlfriend on the phone and I complained to her about being subpoenaed. And I was, you know, pretty overwhelmed by that. I, I just thought, this is so ridiculous. What do they, what do they want me for, you know? Catherine and, and I were walking down uh, to DuPont Circle. We were crossing this intersection of New Hampshire Avenue and 20th Street. And I look up, there's a guy about 20 feet away, maybe. And he's, he's just got his face locked right on my head and he's like his eyes are locked on my head and I look up and I look back down and we get closer I look up he's still staring right at me this is very blank cold looking stare not blinking his eyes not squinting just like staring and uh, as he walks past us he turns his head and continues to stare at me as and I look while I'm watching him he just keeps walking and staring at me so we like stop in the middle of the block and we look back and the guy was standing on the corner. He still looked back, still looking back at me. And he raised his wrist and he talked into his shirt sleeve. So we turn, we start walking down the sidewalk. And as soon as we start walking, there's a guy walking directly toward me. Now he's doing the same thing. Expressionless, but cold kind of look, just staring right at my head. And about this point here, the man cut to my left. He walked by me. Uh, we stopped to get in the road, uh, the sidewalk. And we turned back to look, and this guy crossed over the street, 
And the other guy, the first guy we ran into, was at the first corner waiting for the light to change, is what we thought. Um, they both been on that corner. Uh, they exchanged some words, and then they walked on. Now, DuPont Circle, and I don't know if I should be saying this or not because I don't want to um, make any kind of disparaging remarks, but it's, it's a gay community of Washington. And I said to Catherine, geez, I must look pretty good tonight. And that was just a little joke that, you know, these guys are staring at me. Maybe I look good tonight. So we sort of laugh. And as we turn again to start walking, a guy comes. I don't even know where this guy. Actually, I can't. I don't even know where this guy is. Standing behind a pole or where, what he was standing on a pillar. This guy just comes out of nowhere and walks to, on my right-hand side and just glares at my face. So this guy's looking a little bit angrier than anybody else was. He walked onto my right-hand side and brushed my shoulder as he walked by. And again, this gentleman had his uh, locked-eyed stare on me. And as he walked by me, he just turned his face and continued to stare at me as he walked by. The fifth guy, uh, again, followed us down to uh, the street corner. And as we approached the street corner on our street, there was the sixth guy standing there. The sixth guy was another big guy. He was sort of standing at ease as we approached the corner. And this is when I thought, well, this is, and there's hardly anybody on the street, by the way. It's not very crowded. I'm thinking to myself, now this is getting a little peculiar. Now I realize that these people really are staring at me. It's not my imagination. And as we approach the corner, this guy is like standing in an at ease, at ease position, and he sort of swings himself around in like a military stance as we reach the corner. And he's just like staring down at me, and I look over to me, he's a six foot six guy. And he's like staring down at me, and I said to Catherine, let's cross the street. Most of these men were approaching Patrick and following him and staring at him uh, before his, his predecessor had, had stopped. So it's back to back to back to back. Very, very strange. So we talked to, uh, uh, eventually, uh, uh, I talked to a number of experts who are familiar with this technique of intimidation. And what they said was, well, uh, yeah, they're familiar with it. It's used by uh, federal intelligence and investigative agencies. And uh, what it does is it has two objects, two purposes. Number one, it warns the witnesses and scares the witnesses and, and intimidates the witness. Um, and if that doesn't work and the witness continues to tell the truth about whatever it is that, that they've seen, um, uh, it, it, will, it will discredit him. I mean, who's going to believe uh, somebody uh, who says that every time he leaves his building, there are strange men on every street corner following him and staring at him? And particularly from a witness who said... Uh, that uh, back in on July 20th of 1993, there was a man in the parking lot who was staring at him. I mean, it just, it just sounds, like, sounds like a nut. The guy was right on my tail. He's right behind me. So then we started walking a little quicker. We started picking up our pace a little bit because I'm, now I'm nervous. Now I know something's going on and I'm feeling very uptight. So we start crossing the street. This guy starts walking right behind me. I mean, like right on my heels. And now my heart's starting to pump a little bit. And I'm, I'm feeling a little nervous. And I turn around and this guy is like, I'm not kidding He's like leaning over me as we're walking and I'm picking up our pace. Now, Catherine's getting very upset. She's holding on to me tighter and tighter. And on our left-hand side, there's just another guy pacing back and forth as we're approaching. My heart's racing and my legs are feeling rubbery. I'm actually getting pretty sick to my stomach. Catherine gets very upset. I grabbed Catherine and we ran across Connecticut Avenue, which is a very busy street. It was like a scene out of a movie. I mean, it was just unbelievable. We get in the median strip, and I think, okay, now we're going to get across the street. Uh, the bad guys are behind us, wherever they are. Now, Catherine is starting to get a little weepy. She's getting very upset because it, be it becomes very real. And uh, as we get ready to cross the street where there's no cars coming, I see in the corner another guy standing there. And he's just staring at me, and I'm thinking, this is, a, uh, this is impossible. 
How can they be all over the place here? This is, this is not real. And I realized this point, this road's getting dark. It's too dark. There's no street lights. And I'm just like, uh, this is not good. Let's not go down there. I said to Catherine, let's not go down there. So as I turn around and start heading back, the guy who crossed the street was right here behind us. He was right on top of us. And I like started to panic. Now, Catherine, of course, was holding back tears. So I turn around. And as we turn around to walk back, he turns around and walks right next to Catherine and maintain the same pace walking that we are. If we slow down, he slows down. If we speed up, he speeds up. The whole time we're walking, this guy's just looking over. Look at this cat, who's five foot five, and, and he's looking over her head and just staring at me the whole time we're walking. So finally, we just started running. I didn't care about traffic like I don't right now. I just went, went right across the street. A car comes up on the left-hand side of us and sort of paces our walk. Now, at that point, I mean, not only are my legs rubbery, back at number seven, eight, and nine. But my stomach, I mean, I'm feeling euphoric. I mean, I really am at this time, and this may sound insane to some people, but I feel like I'm my soul is leaving my body. Now, as we get about to this point, the guy walks around in the back of his car. Now, there's, the only, there's no vehicles parked here. It's just his is parked in the middle. I see him go to the back of his car, and he opens his trunk up, and he pulls something out of his trunk. And I sort of hesitate, because I'm thinking, again, this guy's got a gun. And the whole time he's in his trunk, he's turning back and he's looking at us. He's watching us standing where we are. Nothing felt safe. I was. That, that's one thing about this um, uh, this harassment. It really hits you deep. You end up questioning yourself, and that's what it is. You end up questioning yourself, and that loses your confidence. I realized that's the technique they use. It was to make you question yourself, your own sanity, in a very short period of time. It's terrifying. It's like something out of uh, the Twilight Zone or Alfred Hitchcock. It's really scary. You know, a lot of the movies we see today, uh, they always have like these terrorists are the bad guys, the FBI are the good guys that save us. But if you ever turn that upside down, can you think of a more horrifying movie than if the FBI agents were evil and they were terrorizing the citizens and the press was going along with it? It's scary. Finally, after being harassed Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I didn't go anywhere on Sunday. On Monday, this has gone for four days now, Russell Bransford finally calls me on the phone at 10 o'clock and he says, oh, I heard you had a little trouble the weekend. Uh, you want to tell me about it? And I'm like, absolutely. I, you know, I said, we called you. We called Ken Starr's office. Nobody responded. He had nothing to say about that. He said, well, let's come over and talk to you right now. And I said, no, you know, I want, if I'm going to talk to you, I want to have my attorney present. Well, you don't need an attorney to talk to me. It wasn't until much later, at least, you know, uh, uh, maybe a week or so later that we were, you know, trying to figure out what was going on. And, and I, I really couldn't figure it out. I could not figure it out because I thought uh, it, that this is not part of a cover up. I just thought that that's just too incredible uh, that there would be a cover up of Vince Foster's death because I, I knew that the park police had investigated it. I thought that uh, the Congress had investigated it. Um, and, uh, and it was, uh, being investigated by Ken Starr's office and Ken Starr certainly has a stellar reputation by way of integrity. So I thought, well, you know, it just can't be a cover up. Hung the phone up. I went to look for John's telephone number and I had his card for his office. I got his card, found his number, picked up my phones. There was no dial tone. There was no, I mean, my phone was dead. I was like, what is, so I went to my other phone, picked it up and it was completely dead. Ding dong. My phone, my, my doorbell rings. So I'm thinking, oh, maybe it's John. They left a message, uh, one one point for him, and um, 
I go to the door, open the door, and there's the FBI agent. I said, "What are you doing up here?" He goes, "Well, you know, I was just in the neighborhood." And I said, "Well, wherever you called me from, did you hang the phone up?" I said, "My phone's not working." So he walks into my apartment and he goes over to my phone and picks it up. I never really thought about it. he knew exactly where my phone was. Goes over, picks up my phone, and oh, that's dead, all right. That's dead. And he went over to my other phone, picked up. Oh yeah, that's dead. You know, if we had anything to do with this, you'd never know it. If we were tapping your lines or anything like that, you, you would never know it. Then he hangs the phone up, and he unbuttons his coat. He throws his coat open, and I see his sidearm. You know, and he sits down. And he says, um, like this kind of thing. He says, oh, "Tell me about this uh, this stuff problem he had over the weekend." Among other things, the American people have been told is that three separate entities uh, have investigated this case, or or four separate entities, if you include Congress. Uh, they say, uh, well, first the park police uh, concluded uh, suicide in the park, and then the Fisk probe concluded suicide in the park, and then the Star probe concluded suicide in the park. Well, what they're missing is the common denominator in all three of those investigations, and that is the FBI. And all the time I'm telling him the story, he's just sitting there smiling at me, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm telling him the story that, that scared the life out of me, and he's staring at me. And I finally just stopped telling him the story after, I'm serious, 40 minutes I talked to this guy. And I finally said to him, you know, can, what's your deal? What are you smiling about? He said, well, I'm going to tell you this, Mr. Knowlton. That article that was in the newspaper, you know, I've worked with Larry Monroe and William Collinbell. I worked with them in the Fisk uh, investigation, and I've worked with them in the Star investigation. And I said, well, then Officer uh, uh, Agent Bransford, can I trust you? Can I be trusting you? And he leaned right over into my face and said, Mr. Norton, I don't know. That's a very good question. As to why it is that the press won't cover it, I don't know. I, I really don't understand it. Uh, in fact, I didn't believe that they wouldn't cover it. I thought that eventually they would if I just gave them enough evidence of what it was that was going on. Uh, but then uh, I finally, it finally sort of dawned on me uh, and I sort of learned the hard way that they're not going to cover it no matter what it is uh, that we give to them. And the, when, when I learned that was in, on October uh, 10th of 1997. That was when Ken Starr's report was released. And uh, it was released with 20 pages, which I authored, uh, which the three-judge panel ordered uh, Mr. Starr to attach over his objection to his own report. Now, in that 20 pages, among the, it's an 11-page letter, and then excerpts from not from 25 federal government records proving five separate points of a cover-up. Now, this is the first time in the history of the independent counsel statute that an independent counsel was ordered to attach evidence of a cover-up by his own investigators to his own report. Now, if they're not going to recover that, there's pretty much, uh, that sort of says it all. Does, I, could ha I feel like I could have a video of the, of the body being dragged through the park, and they wouldn't cover that. In the, in, at this point, the, the American press has a vested interest in not reporting this story, not telling the public about Patrick Knowlton, whether courts rule in his favor or against, and they're not going to tell the public. They don't want the public to know about Patrick Knowlton or what he saw at Fort Marcy Park. Uh, the press uh, at this point uh, will look bad. Now, if the truth surfaces, uh, their credibility is going to take a very, very major hit. Um, they have been reporting uh, suicide in the park, no foul play, for the last six and a half years, beginning before the first official investigation was even closed. It took me a long time to realize that, that the, the perpetrators, it's so sloppy, and there's so much evidence laying around for someone. If you go out and pick it up and look at it, uh, there's, there's so much evidence of this cover-up. It's, it's all over the place. And uh, 
I think you can only be that sloppy and leave that much evidence out there if you have confidence that the press is not going to report it. When you start to get into the case, you find that every single point uh, in the Office of Independent Counsel's report uh, on the Vince Foster case, I mean, every one of them uh, is untrue. There's not one single point uh, that the Star Report makes that can, with, that can withstand scrutiny when compared with the underlying federal investigative record in the case. Whether or not Mr. Foster was depressed is really not relevant because the physical evidence of the case shows that the man did not take his own life. The blood on his shoulder and, and, and the fact that his car wasn't at the park and so many other things that, uh, that whether or not he was depressed or not really doesn't matter. Depressed people can be, can be killed. If you prove cover-up in this case, you prove some other things that are really much more important, very important for, I think, all of us to know. Uh, it, because if you prove cover-up, you prove not only that there's government corruption, but the Office of Independent Counsel, Mr. Starr's office, and now Mr. Ray's office, is infected with the very corruption that is designed to expose and prosecute. It also proves that we can't rely on the Congress uh, to exercise oversight over the executive. And uh, that's something that we all you know, sort of take for granted. Uh, and uh, also, it tells us, uh, I think probably most importantly, maybe most shockingly, or at least to me, uh, is that we can't rely on the press to report the facts of these cases, even or, or the existence of cover-ups, uh, even when they're obvious, even when we've already proved them. Uh, they're just not going to cover it. They'll focus all the attention on, on Monica Lewinsky or, or, uh, or some other issue, uh, O.J. Simpson, the public is all looking at all the noise and all the action, or they, they talk about how the Democrats, Republicans are really going at it, and you got James Carville battling with Ken Starr, and uh, it appears that, that this is where the, 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 real, uh, the real action is, but it's not. It's the big noise in motion covering up the little motion. And when people are looking up here at this hand that's moving, they don't see what my other hand is doing. And that's what the press does. And they do it very well. It's, it's a lot like a wrestling match, too, because it looks like they're fighting. Uh, there's a lot of ad adversarial thing. It looks like there's a liberal media and a conservative media. you got Limbaugh on one side. Uh, did you ever hear Limbaugh talk about Patrick Knowlton? We rely in this country on our press, our news media, to keep government honest. And they're not doing it. Uh, and it's, um, it, it's our separate democratic institutions are not functioning uh, as they were intended, as the founding fathers intended. They're supposed to be exercising uh, oversight over one another. They're supposed to be pursuing different interests. They're really not. They're really pursuing the same interest, and that is credibility. Now the whole thing's going to unravel because of Mr. Nolan. Everything's coming apart because the whole conspiracy to cover up the facts uh, is coming apart, and the role of the press from the very beginning is coming apart. I'm just an average citizen. All I did was I called the police when I thought that something was wrong. I did what I thought was my civic duty by coming forward and talking to the FBI. I did what I thought was, was right by going and talking to a journalist. And I also did what I thought was right by going before the grand jury. And all this stuff is just, you know, caved in my little world that I lived in. And it was, it's devastating. But what's the lesson that people learn from, from what Patrick Knowlton did? Uh, I think the lesson uh, of, or the possible lessons are that if you know something and it, and it doesn't go along with whatever it is that the FBI wants you to say, change your story and keep your mouth shut. I've certainly made some enemies by doing what I've done because I'm, I'm dealing with people who are covering up a murder. People who cover up murder are not very nice people. And uh, I don't think about it a lot, but uh, there's some risk involved. 
but I, but given the choice of of, uh, of uncovering the murder, helping Patrick, and taking that risk, I'd rather do that than just go along. I don't want to go along with murder, and I don't want to go along with, with lies. And I don't go along. I want to go along with the press that's not truthful and just pretend that it's okay. I know too much now to turn around and go back. I couldn't live a life that was false. We've proved the case. I mean, we haven't even issued one subpoena. And we've already proved cover-up. It's all documented now. We've pulled all the pieces of the puzzle together and put them in a, in a bound volume. And, and uh, if it hadn't been for Mr. Knowlton, I don't think uh, the truth would have come out. All right. So that was it. That was uh, Patrick Knowlton getting gang-stalked uh, back in the day by the unknown others. Many people unknown, intimidated. Um, so where do you want to take it from there, John? Well, uh, uh, very briefly, I wanted to talk about what was the purpose of, of that harassment, the way that he suffered. Again, he was in Fort Marcy Park reporting that someone was giving him a cold, hard stare. So how do you discredit something like that? Well, you, you have it so that uh, every time uh, the witness uh, steps out of his apartment building, there are strange men on every street corner giving him a cold, hard stare. And this, uh, it worked. Uh, let me uh, read you just a couple of things. And this is from, uh, quoted in uh, Patrick's civil rights lawsuit uh, that he filed. Uh, uh, but uh, this is, a, a, and it's, a, it's, it's at the website, the uh, amended complaint. It reads like a short story. In any event, uh, this is what the Weekly Standard uh, magazine had to say uh, by in an article uh, by uh, by Michael Isikoff, who's one of the most valuable players in this uh, murder cover-up. Um, he writes, uh, Evans Bridger's work, such as it is, consists of little more than wild flights of conspiratorial fancy, coupled with outrageous and wholly uncorroborated allegations, et cetera, et cetera. And it goes on, Patrick Knowlton, a construction worker who stopped to urinate at Fort Marcy Park on the afternoon of Foster's death, here's the key part, recalls seeing a mysterious Hispanic-looking man lingering around the parking lot. No sooner has the as Evans Pritchard popped this bombshell in the telegraph than Knowlton reports menacing men in business suits begin following him and staring at him really hard. And then another uh, magazine also quoted in that paragraph, the amended complaint, is November 25th, 1997, the National Review, uh, written by uh, Jacob Cohn. Uh, and he writes that Knowlton consists that very sinister looking man was hovering around the parking lot and may have monitored his peeing. Knowlton seems to have a penchant for seeing the sinister in the glances of those he meets. Mysterious cars follow him, he says, carefully organized of men constantly pass him and his girlfriend on the street, giving them very menacing stares. So uh, it, it worked, uh, what it was that they did. Uh, we... Uh, 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 notified uh, Congress. We had uh, personalized letters to 500 and hand-delivered to 535 members of Congress. Um, and uh, one of the um, one of the uh, uh, recipients, there only only got four responses. We can go through them a little bit later. Um, but one of those recipients uh, was Dana Rohrbacher, and he he uh, 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 met with Patrick. And also with Evans, uh, Ambrose Evans Pritchard, and he too is familiar with the uh, technique of harassment that Patrick suffered. Uh, he said that when he was in the uh, uh, Reagan administration as a speechwriter, 
that they employed that technique, uh, uh, that he was aware of, of their having employed that technique. Now, um, what I want to do uh, next is to just briefly go through uh, that appendix that you saw that I was referring to in the uh, in the documentary, the first or the 28 minutes of the documentary that was never finished. Um, it, that, is that accessible, John? Is that accessible on your website? Well, is what accessible? The appendix. Yes, the appendix is on, is on the website. I have a copy of it right here. Um, and it, this was uh, uh, ordered to attach, be attached to Ken Starr's, or I should say Brett Kavanaugh's, report on the death of Vincent Foster. Um, and it's the only time in the history of the independent counsel statute that an independent counsel was ordered to attach evidence of a cover-up by his own investigators in his own report. And not one news organization covered it in this country. Not one. Uh, it's kind of amazing. Uh, the highest ranking official to die under suspicious circumstances since JFK. Now this, um, I want to go through some of the exhibits that are in the appendix. I have them blown up here. Let's see, I haven't tried this before, but let's see if I can uh, go through this with you and your listeners, if, they, if you okay. can see it. Uh, this is, I don't know if you can see this, this is exhibit one. And it has the uh, Patrick's uh, 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 his experience at Port Marcy Park for five minutes. He walked next to the car, the second car, and the first car was not Vince Foster's car. And then down here we have the timeline of everything that has happened. At July 20th, he witnesses uh, 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 these events at Port Marcy Park. April 15th of 1993, uh, the FBI uh, interviews him. Uh, and then May 11th uh, of 1995, he's, excuse me, 1994, he's interviewed again, and they uh, uh, falsified his, his, uh, his, uh, his account. And then in 1995, um, Ambrose Everett Pritchard notifies him, uh, uh, locates him. It was very difficult to do because they hid his, uh, misspelled his name. Um, and then this, uh, and, then, and then finally, uh, this is a one-week period where he's subpoenaed and harassed again. The only people that knew that he was subpoenaed was the FBI and uh, Brett Kavanaugh's Office of Independent Counsel. Now, here's the Exhibit 2. It's got uh, these uh, uh, numbers of uh, 27 people or people who harassed him. And it goes through and tells you what it was that, uh, that he suffered. Now, didn't you also, guys have, sorry to interrupt, John, but didn't you guys have pictures of some of those guys? They were like young guys carrying black satchels. We saw, we found, uh, yeah, we have one photograph because Patrick saw him on the street in front of the building where he lived at the time uh, on Pennsylvania Avenue. He said he saw the photograph, and so we have that photograph and we published it. So we have photograph of one, um, and then this. Uh, um, I'll go through the balance of these exhibits. The order attached to Ken Starr's report proving a murder cover-up. Uh, here's a U.S. This this shows. Uh, that he did he did not own the weapon that was eventually recovered from his hand. Uh, and this just kind of proves that the FBI uh, tricked Mrs. Foster. Can you hear me? Yeah, I got you. Okay. Uh, uh, tricked uh, uh, Mrs. Foster uh, into identifying the weapon. The weapon is black that was found in his hand. Here's a picture from ABC News. What he had this black weapon. And then they, but they, the, Mr. Foster had a silver weapon. So the FBI down here is the FBI uh, 302 report showing that they showed Mrs. Foster a silver weapon and she identified it. And of course, the FBI said that was the weapon that was recovered for his hand. 
it was it's a, an obvious lie. Now, this one we're showing that Fitz Foster was dead by 4:30 when when uh, Patrick was in the park. Uh, um, we we know he had a, a cheeseburger. Uh, we know that the uh, about one o'clock. We know that the U.S. Park Police report said that he that he had. Uh, excuse me. The um, the doctor who performed the autopsy said he'd been dead for two to three hours. So that uh, puts his time of death before 4:30. And here's a, a paramedic's incident report uh, saying essentially the same thing. So he was dead by the time that uh, that Patrick Dalton was in the park. Now this one is interviews with Patrick Dalton to two other civilian witnesses. Patrick Dalton and the two other civilian witnesses uh, uh, testified or, or told the FBI and the Park Police, to the extent that they asked, uh, that the car was brown. It was not Fitz Foster's car. And another interesting thing about those two witnesses um, is that uh, one of them, or they both said that the that the car, that, the, that this is the car that Kavanaugh says was Fitz Foster's car. There was a man seated in it, and the hood was up, and there was another guy standing outside. This, uh, you wouldn't know any of that from reading uh, Kavanaugh's report of the death. Uh, uh, next one. Oh, uh, this is this is uh, the photographs. Here's the photograph, the, the, uh, the, the uh, uh, U.S. Park Police officers who took a whole roll of photographs of the body uh, said they looked good to him, and the FBI said no, they couldn't get anything from them. They were all underexposed. And I and the the, uh, the next one here is the same thing about the Polaroids. Now only thirteen Polaroids exist officially, and if the Polaroids disappear, here it is. That proves that there's been a lie about that too. Now the autopsy. We'll go into the autopsy a little bit more a little bit later, I hope. Um, but this is uh, again part of part of Kavanaugh's report saying autopsy report. The X-ray which were taken. U.S. Park Police report, the doctor told the Park Police who were attending that the, the x-ray showed, that what the x-ray showed. And now down here, we've got the FISC report, since there was no x-rays taken because the the uh, uh, the x-ray machine was broken. And at the bottom here, we have an affidavit uh, saying, saying that, uh, that this uh, gentleman, Reed Irvine, uh, founder of Accuracy Media, called up uh, the person who was to check, who was who serviced the uh, the X-ray machine, it wasn't broken. The first, uh, it was brand new, and the first service call was in October. Again, this this was in July, so they're lying about that too. And then, lastly, this is probably the most important one. This is the fifth exhibit, uh, one of four pages. I won't go through the other pages, but this talks about the the a bullet wound in Mr. Foster's neck. There was a bullet wound in his neck. He was supposed to have pulled the trigger. Uh, with the, with, the, with the, uh, this high-velocity uh, weapon uh, in his mouth. He didn't. It was in his neck. And we have a lot of evidence, so hopefully we'll have an opportunity to go through it, to prove to your viewers that there was a bullet wound in Mr. Foster's neck. So. So this, um, which which document is the one that you sent me right here? Let's see if I can get this off. Which document is this? Is this the what the edition that you put in there? That's your name oh, on, this, right, John H. Clark? Yeah, these are some selections of uh, of uh, some items that I wanted to go through with you, and they're they're really very telling. But before I do, let me show you this. Now, this is a okay. five hundred and forty page document, and it's filed 
in the uh, here and filed in a number of federal courts, but this is filed in the U.S. Supreme Court. So um, where, of course, Brett Kavanaugh is, uh, see if I is associate justice. Now, that's 540 pages. And what it proves, we'll go through some of it. We'll at least go through the table of contents, or at least portions of the table of contents. It's very lengthy. But it, what it proves is that there's nothing, as I said in that documentary, there's nothing that Kavanaugh wrote in this report that is true. Now, you might say, well, that's, that must be an overstatement. Even if there's a, even if it's cover, a murder cover-up, there's something that's going to be true. No, there isn't. And the reason that there isn't is because Vince Foster's body was not ready for its official cover-up discovery when that 911 call went into uh, the Fairfax County. So that's the reason. It, what The body wasn't ready for its discovery. That's the reason that we're in the position that we are in order to prove virtually that there's nothing that's true in, in uh, Kavanaugh's report. So let's go through. Uh, have you got uh, that uh, file that I sent yeah. you? Yes, I do. I'll pull it right up. This one, right? Yeah. Now that's the first page. We have, we just saw that. So let's go on to the second page. Okay. Now, second I, page. Yeah. Yeah. Now uh, what I wanted to talk about this is that you know, particularly for the people who live through this, uh, they again have heard uh, suicide in the park, suicide in the park, suicide in the park. Heard it over and over again, and it was really uh, this is I think the longest sustained press leak in U.S. history. Suicide, suicide, suicide. We, uh, um, uh, uh, so, but there are people who say, well, if this was true, um, number one, uh, somebody would have come forward. Well, the fact is we don't know how many people have come forward. We know that the prosecutor, Miguel Rodriguez, and we have him on tape at the website, fbicoverup.com, on tape talking about his uh, interactions with journalists, he was trying his best. He really tried to get the word out. He spoke with over 100 journalists. Try, and this is the prosecutor assigned to the Vince Foster death investigation. 100 journalists and not one of them uh, printed uh, the uh, uh, printed anything or not one newspaper. And he talks about this. He said, you know, a lot of these journalists uh, were really quite interested. They went to the, went to the uh, uh, and he says, Again, you can listen to him talking about it. He says that they went through all the trouble of writing the, uh, these articles, uh, some of which they read to him over the phone, and not one of the editors would let it go to print. Not one. So uh, there, we don't, like I said, we don't know how many people sought to come forward. We know that it's uh, that a number of people did, and that it was just uh, it was really news suppression. Right, now let's go on to the uh, uh, next page. Sorry, yeah, next page. Yeah, this is the summary of contents. So yeah, you can see all the work that John did on this. There's just tons of pages, five hundred. Yeah, pages. And I, yeah. Actually, uh, instead of the summary of contents, let's go to the very next page. Uh, it's the fourth page, and that's the table of contents. That's not the summary of contents uh, of, of the uh, uh, summary of contents. That's the actual table of contents. As you can see, it's very lengthy. It's got virtually everything in it, uh, and um, 
Well, chapter uh, four, we talk about the, the, that the uh, that the White House knew about the death before they were officially notified. We prove that, um, and then the next chapter five, we talk about the photographs, some of which we cover here. We showed absolutely prove that the photographs have, have uh, vanished. The next chapter, chapter six, is the longest one. It's just, and the, its title is "Evidence that the OIC, that stands for Office of Independent Counsel." covered up the absence of the official mouth entrance wound, wasn't there, and the head exit wound, wasn't there, and the existence of a knife, of a neck wound. The, the, the bullet entered his uh, entered into his into his brain and it did not exit, it was still there. So that's why, uh, one of the reasons why the, the autopsy had to be so, uh, uh, so messed up. So let's talk really very briefly about the autopsy first. Um, Do you want to scroll down? Is it? Uh, yeah, it's on page. Uh, it's on your page five. five. So, so uh, it's in the table of contents. So it's further up. So you want to go to chapter five, the table of contents? This. Yes. Uh huh. Okay. At chapter five, you'll see the autopsy there the bottom of the page there okay first of all this this autopsy really tells us a lot about the evidence of cover-up it, it really has a lot first of all it was uh, under a it was rescheduled three separate authorities all claimed responsibility for rescheduling the autopsy he was found on a tuesday afternoon he was supposed to have uh, his autopsy on a thursday morning uh instead uh it was moved to the very next day. And again, uh, three authorities each claimed without having spoken to anyone else that they had changed it. So they can't get their quite their story straight. Uh, the next next uh, under B there, failure of investigators to attend. Well, there's a, re, there's a, a, a requirement that the investigating officers, this is a US Park Police re, requirement, also Fairfax County Office of Medical Examiner requirement that the investigating officers attend. They didn't, but other officers did. The entrance wound evidence removed. That's a big one. Before the the uh, police officers uh, got to the autopsy to um, to, to uh, witness it, it was essentially over. Uh, Dr. Byer had, this is the autopsy doctor, Dr. Byer had removed the evidence, the official evidence of the mouth entrance wound. He removed it. It was gone. It was so that's essentially the vast majority of the autopsy was over by the police got get there. Uh, next thing under D, refusal to identify autopsy assistant. And by the way, all of this is proven. It's all quoted from federal investigative records. This entire 540 pages quotes 184 exhibits. Again, proving each and every point that Kavanaugh wrote in his report is a lie. The next one, refusal to identify autopsy assistant. The police asked him, uh, asked Dr. Pryor, who's helping you? He refused to identify him, so you don't need his name. They wouldn't tell, they wouldn't tell the police who was conducting the autopsy. The caliber of the next one, caliber of weapon unknown. The only thing that Dr. Pryor knew was that a, a nondescript weapon was found in close proximity to the body. He, that's from his testimony. He doesn't even know what type of weapon it was or that it was allegedly found in his hand. Next one, lab report make, uh, contradicts the existence of the official entrance wound. Now, this is very important. Um, we can, in our review, it was uh, it was seventeen three people working seventeen months full time. We 
we found a, uh, or I found a FBI report that uh, excused, that uh, talked about a previous uh, report from the uh, uh, Virginia Medical Examiner's Office from their laboratory. And it excused the absence of gunpowder on these slides that Dr. Beyer had sent to his own laboratory. So Dr. Beyer, when he, he took out, of course, the, uh, the, uh, entered the alleged entrance room in the soft pallet, and what he said was he could see the gunpowder. Uh, 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 it was grossly present. In other words, you could see it with the naked eye. So he took some slides and he sent it to his own, uh, his own laboratory. And then we see this, uh, this FBI lab report saying that the reason that there was no, no gunpowder on these slides, and the reason that it was, was because it was not prepared in a way that is conducive to retaining unconsumed gunpowder particles. In other words, it just vanished. Now this finding, uh, or a report of of, uh, of the of the soft palate having gunpowder on it was really the cornerstone of all of the uh, these medical experts uh, that were subsequently hired. Uh, they harped over and over again. How could this possibly have happened? He had gunpowder on his soft palate. Well, he didn't. Uh, it's just a, a lie. The next one is FBI was apprised of the preliminary results of no exit wound. Uh, we found that, or, or actually Alan Favish found that, uh, in a FOIA a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit soon after the release of the Star report. And what it says is the FBI was apprised. Uh, the preliminary resort showed no exit wound. There was no exit wound, as we'll talk about later. The next thing, x-rays vanished. We talked a little bit about that already. Uh, they changed the story. First, it was the, the x-ray machine was uh, working. Uh, it wasn't working. It got readable x-rays. It didn't get readable x-rays. Uh, they didn't take any x-rays was another story because it was broken. Well, it wasn't broken and the x-rays turned out fine as we saw. Uh, there's no official estimate of time of death. Why is that, I wonder? Well, because his, uh, they just want to stay away from that uh, because uh, of course his car or and also his car keys were not in the park. And then um, conflicting evidence of bullet trajectory. Well, one of the reports says that he has his posterior orthotics will show a will show where that is in the in the head. And then another report says, and Dr. Byer says it was in a soft palate. They both can't be true. Uh, it's just conflicting. So in any event, um, that's the sort of thing we're talking about now. If we have time, when we get through uh, the majority of this, uh, William, if you want to ask me any questions, you could pick any uh, aspect of this case, and I will prove to you. Uh, showing the federal and, and your viewers, showing the federal government records that it's a lie. Okay. Now okay. let's go. Down, if you don't, uh, uh, if you go down to page nine, that photograph of the payphone. Don't want to talk about that. Yeah. Now, um, remember, I said that the reason that this case is just so incredibly screwed up uh, by way of the cover-up is that the body was not ready for its discovery when the official uh, um, when the official uh, 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 911 when the 911 call went in uh, to uh, the police it just it wasn't ready there were, his car wasn't there his car keys weren't there his gun wasn't there the the, uh, the neck wound had not been covered up the, it was just a mess and there's a sign, you might have seen it when you were watching the video, when you pull into Fort Marcy Park, there's a sign that says, Fort Marcy Park closed at dark. So obviously, what the idea was, 
They get it all ready for uh, for its discovery. At dark, the park police would drive in there and find a car, take a walk through the park and find it and, and, uh, and report it. At that time, they would have the body ready for its official discovery, but not when it happened. And the reason I wanted to go through this is According to Kavanaugh's report, this guy named C.W., Dale Kyle, discovered the body. Now, uh, let's talk a little bit about how we know that's a lot. Um, because uh, a C.W., or Dale Kyle, um, his, this is his claim. He went, to the, he went into Fort Marcy Park uh, to urinate. Uh, he got out of his van, his white van, took his shirt off, walked 700 feet up into the park, not the first large tree as Patrick Dalton did, it's just not true, and then and then saw uh, Vince Foster's uh, body and saw that he did not have a weapon in his hand and he thought, that, uh, uh, Kyle thought that he had been hit in the head but he was clearly dead. So according to Kyle, he walked back to the, uh, back to his, back to his van uh, and he uh, noticed some items in this brown Honda, this older Honda, which is the government and Kavanaugh wants you to think is Vince Foster's car. Uh, but we know from where he was standing, there's no way he could have seen these items in the car. He just couldn't have done it. He was 25 feet away at an elevated position. He could not have seen this. So then he says he got in his van and uh, drove to the nearest payphone about a mile down the road. Um, at the uh, at the park service uh, maintenance facility. So he drove in, and but he decided not to call the police uh, uh, himself. Instead, he told two park service workers about the dead body. And one of the reasons that he did not call the police, he says, is because he couldn't see any payphones. Well, this is the photograph of the payphones when you drive in uh, to the uh, to the park. You cannot miss it. Payphones right here. So then he says uh, he talked to these two park maintenance workers, uh, and and then he drove away. Uh, and one of the reasons he didn't uh, he didn't report it himself, so he says, is because he didn't want to end up like that guy he found. Now that makes absolutely no sense. You discover a dead body, you call it in, and they're going to kill you because of it. It's, it's just ludicrous. So in any event. He uh, so uh, the Fisk report, which was the first or second layer of this FBI cover up, um, uh, said that they talked to talked to him and he test. He passed the test of veracity because he was uh, because they compared what he had to say with these two uh, park maintenance workers. Well, uh, and, and this is the Fisk report. It says that they after a detailed study. Well, we did a detailed study, and, and of the three reporting people. Kyle and the two maintenance workers, not one of them said anything that was the same as the other. They could not, their stories are so screwed up. One, he was driving a, a, a white van. One, he was driving a, a, a dark van, uh, a dark colored van. Uh, one of them says Virginia tags. One of them said Maryland tags. One of them said uh, uh, estimate his height because uh, uh, the other one said, well, he couldn't estimate his height because he never got out of the truck. Um, and you can then, hear me? Yes, I hear you, Hugh. Well, I, I hear you. hear anything. Yeah, I hear you. Okay, sorry. Continue, so, John. Uh, well, uh, and so he uh, he's uh, 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 this guy uh, Kyle uh, uh, says um, he that he thought he said there was no gun. He thought the guy had been hit with the head. Well, the the park maintenance in this ginned up transcript that there was is a big lie. Uh, the park maintenance worker calls up the transcript that we got in a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit 
and said, well, uh, it, uh, it looks like the man's been shot. Well, he didn't get that information from Dale Kyle. Um, so that's, that's just not true. And he also, the first thing, he picked up the phone to call a about a dead body. And the first thing he reports is a car accident uh, on the parkway, a fender bender. Well, Dale Kyle uh, uh, didn't say, we, after this detailed discussion, he didn't say anything about a car accident. The car accident was between Fort Marcy Park and this and this maintenance facility. He wouldn't have known the, uh, the guy who called it in, Stowe, uh, the maintenance worker. Uh, he wouldn't have known about it unless unless uh, somebody had told him. And, and uh, according to uh, all accounts, they was not, he was not told. So, um, and the, this guy, Dale Kyle, he didn't come forward for eight months. Eight months later, when the FBI was uh, doing its second death investigation, uh, they uh, he, he allegedly came forward. Well, as I said, this, this case is so screwed up because the body wasn't ready for its discovery. And so whoever it was who did decide, who did find that body, and Hugh might have something to add to this, he saw something he wasn't supposed to see. So uh, they had to, uh, 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 you know, lie about that. Now, let's go on to the, to the next page, uh, if you don't mind, William. And actually, the page, yeah, the one more, one more page. Um, yeah, that, now that, you'll see, this is the subpoena that Patrick received to testify before the Whitewater Grand Jury. You can see who signed it, Brett M. Cavanaugh with his telephone number. Well, you know, I got this case on a Friday. Uh, Patrick's harassment began on Thursday. I, I, it was Friday evening before I spoke with him. He was to testify on Wednesday. On Monday, I got in touch with the Office of Independent Counsel and called up Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, you know, got the telephone number off the subpoena and called him up and talked to him. And he and I, it was a fairly short conversation. He said he was going to cover the harassment in the uh, grand jury testimony. Um, and so that was the only conversation that I had with him. And you can see um, uh, from the appendix, among other things, the court-ordered appendix, the uh, 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 submitted on, on Patrick's behalf, um, he talks about how horribly Kavanaugh treated him, just horribly, just accused him of being a, a, a they have this, uh, the government has this lie about how it's a homosexual hangout, uh, uh, Fort Marcy Park, which it isn't. Uh, but they, they accused him, uh, almost accused him, came right out, accused him of being a homosexual and being in the park cruising. Uh, it was just it was just horrendous. And he also asked him um, a number of questions towards the, at the very end. And I, I accompanied Patrick in this grand jury testimony. He took two breaks and he, both times he came out and said, they are just trying to discredit me. They are trying to discredit me. So in any event, uh, uh, the last time he came out was when, uh, according to Kavanaugh, uh, he wanted to ask the grand jurors if they had some questions that they wanted to ask. So can you step out? Patrick stepped out told me about, again, uh, I was being discredited or attempted to be discredited. And then he stepped back in and Kavanaugh asked him a number of questions about this guy that he saw in the park. He said, did he talk to you? Did he threaten you? And then he said, and then he, did he touch your genitals in the grand jury? That's what he asked Patrick Knowlton. And Patrick was just uh, uh, flabbergasted by this. Now, uh, later on in correspondence, uh, uh, the Office of Independent Counsel, Kavanaugh and John Bates, the Deputy Independent Counsel, uh, 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 you know, said that this did not happen. He did not ask him this. So 
Uh, but here we have on this, uh, which is page 12, on November 13, 1995, um, uh, memorandum by Hickman Ewing. He was a deputy independent counsel in Little Rock uh, and, and to his file. And the subject is Chris Ruddy. And Chris Ruddy had called uh, 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 Hickman Ewing. Uh, to talk to him about these questions because Patrick had told Chris Ruddy about it. And so um, this is a, a memorandum regarding a voicemail that, that Ewing received from Kavanaugh. He says, Brett said that on the voicemail to me, I didn't ask him that. I did ask him about sexual advances by the other man in the park. Well, he's coming half clean. He did ask it. And what, why is he asking sexual questions about uh, uh, Patrick's uh, five-minute visit to the park. Um, now, that was the first the, the first time I talked to uh, Kavanaugh. I was, was on that Monday. And then the next time I talked to him was uh, the day after Patrick testified on November 2nd. And so I call, and this is, you know, we've seen what Patrick had been going through for days now. Uh, on the day after he testified, it had been treated this way. Uh, there was somebody who came into the building, and my uh, my... Uh, explanation of what he was doing here in this building uh, was either to Patrick we didn't know which so I called up by this time I was a little upset I was I was angry uh, by this time so I called up Kavanaugh again I said I, I said there was somebody in this came into this building was either here to scare Patrick or to kill him and I wanted a meeting with the FBI and the Office of Independent Council today and that was at 3.30 p.m. Uh, and so Brett says, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of silence. He says, okay, how about 6 o'clock? So fine. So, so at 6 o'clock, again, I didn't really know uh, a lot about this uh, 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 cover-up. I really hadn't figured out what was going on. But in any event, I, I, I show up at the Office of Independent Counsel, and uh, Deputy Independent Counsel John Payton answers the door. And he escorts me into a conference room. It's a fairly small conference room. So I'm sitting in the middle of the conference room. At the head on the right was um, yeah. At the far right uh, was. Um, Let me back up here. I'm sitting at the at the conference table in the middle. Directly across from me, there are five people in there other than me. Directly across from me is this guy, Eric Lukanoff, supervisory FBI agent. Now to Lukanoff's left, so to my right, was Deputy Independent Counsel John Bates. Um, and then uh, to the far left was a uh, US, uh, uh, a DC Park, DC Metropolitan Police Department, uh, Jeff Green, cold case squad. Uh, he was on my left. And right next to me on my left was Jim Clement. And he's a very interesting character. We'll talk about him a little bit later. And then um, uh, uh, just. Hold on. Are you saying Jim Clemente? Jim Clemente? Yes. Oh, no. I didn't know that he was in that. Sorry to interrupt. Oh, yeah. I, oh, yeah. He's super interesting. I'm, yeah, I know a lot about him. Oh, yeah. yeah Hugh has uh, some interesting uh, information about him. In any event, so um, and so uh, Lukanoff is directly across the table from me. And just to Lukanoff's right and to my left is Brett Kavanaugh. 
So um, let me tell you what I told the group. So look, I'm doing most of my talking is to look it off a little bit more to Bates during the, the course of this presentation. So what I did was I told them what happened. So let me re read to you uh, what Patrick wrote about what happened so that I can sort of adequately describe what it was that I told the, the, uh, those people in that conference room that on November 2nd, 1995. At about 3.30 p.m., Patrick went down to a lobby of his apartment building. As he exited his elevator, he noticed a man standing outside of the building. He walked towards the front door. Another tenant entered, and the man followed into the Patrick's building. As soon as he made eye contact with Patrick, he became startled and immediately turned around, walked out the door, and stood looking at a newspaper box to the left of the entrance to his back with Patrick. Patrick walked out back to his with his back to the, his building, he took short steps side to side as if he was nervous. This is this guy. Patrick walked out the door, turned to the right, walked about 20 feet, looked back, and saw that the man was walking about 15 feet behind him. Patrick continued about another 80 feet to the corner. Uh, as he retrieved the newspaper from the newspaper box, he looked up and to his left and saw the man looking down, reaching into his bag with his right hand. The man looked up, made contact with Patrick, and quickly pulled his hand out of the bag and dropped the bag to his side. Now, I'm telling everybody in the room about this. And as I'm telling them, I'm looking around, you know, I'm talking to a group of six other people. I'm looking around the room, looking at these people. And every time I looked at Kavanaugh, he was a mess. He was 29 years old and he was a mess. He was distraught. He was written all over his face. He was like, you know, like it was just really a mess. Uh, uh, and so, uh, so uh, my glances, looking around the room, I tried not to make it too obvious, but I kept on looking at him more than anyone else because I just wanted to see his reaction to what I was saying, and he was a mess. Now, let me read on. Seconds after Packer start walking towards the building, they walk past each other. About 10 feet they passed, Patrick looked behind him and saw the man standing on the corner looking back at Patrick. Patrick then turned and walked toward the man. The man turned and ran. He ran diagonally across 24th Street, across K Street, and onto Washington Circle. Now, this, this is what Patrick says about his reaction to this encounter. As the man reached into his bag, I was scared. I thought he was reaching for a gun. Then the fear turned into anger. I felt, I felt fed up and decided to confront the guy. I thought if the guy was going to shoot me, he better shoot me. When he ran away, the reality of being in danger sunk in, and the anger turned back to fear. So that's that was my uh, so as again as I'm uh, uh, telling this group, and I'm looking at, at uh, Brett Kavanaugh. I didn't know this at the time, but Brett had replaced uh, U.S. Attorney Miguel Rodriguez because Rodriguez was not going to go along uh, with the cover-up. So um, those are my. Uh, um, <laughs> My, it, my, uh, that was my uh, meeting with uh, with Brett Kavanaugh. If you could go to the next page, or next two, the next page down to page fifteen, versus child abduction unit. There we go. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's Jim Clemente right there. Oh wow! I didn't know. Yeah. There he I is. didn't know there he was is. involved. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh. It's uh, Jim Clement's official website states. For over a decade, he was an FBI profiler investigating serial, violent, and sexual crimes. He is an internationally recognized expert in the field of child sexual victimization 
sexual homicide and child abduction. Now, why was he assigned to this case? And then uh, Hugh found this, uh, this cover page that's above that on the page, Child Abduction and Serial Killer Unit of the FBI. Questions and then the name of this document, that is the author of the document. And then uh, the name of the document is Questions for a Suicide Expert, Vincent Foster, Death Investigation. Wow. Uh, now, what is this doing in this file? Wouldn't it be nice to, wouldn't it be, would you like to see what, what was, uh, you know, what was What were they thinking? How to get involved? Just to interrupt, John, I was, uh, I published a book about the West Memphis Three, and Clemente's on this kind of true crime podcast that did a lousy job. And one of his cohorts on this podcast just called me a book peddler, just called me the worst stuff. It was unbelievable. But their version of, it's a whole nother story than this, but, uh, these people couldn't get it right, man. They just couldn't even get close. But yeah, so anyway, I have kind of an well, oblique connection to Clemente. Yeah, both Patrick and I had uh, had uh, quite a bit of contact with Clemente. He was the one assigned to the case, and I talked to him with a number of times, and Patrick talked to him a number of times without me present also. Uh, I'll, I'll look at the next page, if you don't mind. Uh, yeah, sure. This one, right? Now this, yeah, is a telecopy cover sheet, uh, and it's by um, uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, and it's to Hick Ewing, Deputy Independent Counsel in Little Rock, Hick, Hick Ewing, and a number of pages three, and it says, and so here in all caps, Kavanaugh wrote, we have big, underlined big problems with Miguel's leaks. Now what he's talking about is Miguel calling these hundred calling his journalists, trying to get the word out about a murder cover-up that Kavanaugh is uh, covering up. Uh, I was at a, uh, I was having lunch, actually I was on the phone, there uh, There was a group of journalists having lunch with a friend of mine uh, about six months ago, and I told them all about this, and, they, uh, and I told them what Miguel said, you know, Miguel Rodriguez was talking about how he used to, there was a cover-up and he couldn't get the word out, he talked to over 100 journalists, and this with a couple of journalists at the table, one of them said, well, has this been verified? I said, well, why don't you verify? You're a reporter. Go to the website and listen to him. We've, it's on tape. We have him on tape saying this. And, of course, I never heard from him or any other journalist who was at that table. Um, I don't know if he went, went there or not. And just for uh, people who don't know, Miguel, during his whole investigation, Miguel was kind of like a straight shooter. He kept having problem bouncing into problems with his investigation. Vince Foster and quit, left D.C., and is now... Uh, living like literally became a transsexual and now was like Michelle Rodriguez, right? That's correct. He had a, uh, he had a sex change, uh, and he said, uh, but he was a prosecutor before that, before he uh, in the Northern District of California, federal prosecutor, uh, and he was a and he went back to that same uh, position, federal prosecutor in the Northern District of California. Very very capable person. Uh, let's look. Let's go to the next page. Uh, if you don't mind. Nope. Yeah. Now oh, this look is, at that this name. Is, Kamala Harris. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Kamala Harris. I underlined that one. This is an August 2018 letter uh, that I hand delivered to the Judiciary Committee when they were having their hearings, uh, whether or not uh, to, to confirm uh, Brett Kavanaugh as a Supreme Court justice. And let me uh, show this to you. It's a cover letter, which is... Uh, 
seven pages long, along with um, 80 pages attached to it. It's got the court-ordered appendix uh, to uh, uh, Kavanaugh's report. Uh, it has uh, 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 Miguel Rodriguez's 30-page memorandum that he sent to, among others, Star, uh, 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 and uh, setting forth what happened to him when he had a uh, a meeting with Kavanaugh and other members of the uh, of the Office of Independent Counsel, telling him about all these areas of cover up. He says the police planted the weapon in his hand. Uh, he said that the that some of the park police officers who were in the park before the White House claims to have known that Vincent Foster had been had been uh, found there, uh, th that these park police officers were members of the special unit of the U.S. Park Police, which is detailed to the White House. But what are they doing there uh, before anyone find out? Another thing that that that, uh, that Miguel Rodriguez, I mean, he's 30 pages. It's got a lot in there, all kinds of items of a cover-up. But one thing, and a few things that we didn't know, and one of them is uh, that uh, that the first police officer on the scene, Kevin Fornshorn, we need to talk about him and his ridiculous story, um, had responded uh, to the park before the 911 call went in. Now, that, that's, that's kind of interesting, I thought. In any event, um, in this letter, uh, I say to them, uh, to, the, to the Judiciary Committee, to Kamala Harris and Orrin Hatch and all the rest of them, um, I say that I'm asking them to include these 80 pages in the congressional record. But then I point out, I know you're not going to do it, uh, but I, but I, this is just for a posterity's sake. So that I want to make sure that when this becomes public, that you, I want to make sure, be able to tell people that you knew all about it. So I didn't ask them to do anything. All I asked them was to, uh, to tell me to, to acknowledge receipt. I got no, nothing, of course, nothing. Uh, they, they did not acknowledge receipt. They don't want to know. I wonder how many of these people uh, on the Judiciary Committee has gone to FBICoverUp.com and watched that video that we were just watching or looked at this uh, document uh, detailing uh, uh, evidence of a cover-up on virtually every single aspect of this case. I, I would really like to know that. Maybe someday, you know, my kids or grandkids will find out about it, but... We don't, we don't know. Uh, let's turn to the next page, if you don't mind. Now, this is Fort Marcy Park, this this map. And what we did was we went, uh, or Patrick and Hugh, it was really quite incredible what they did. The, they traced everybody's uh, 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 movements in the park from the time that they arrived until the, until the, until the, the, the body was uh, taken out of the park. And so what we did here was we did it minute by minute. Um, uh, and you see at the top here, it says Fort Rice Park at 6.26 p.m. And this is the time when Sergeant U.S. Park Police Sergeant Robert Edwards showed up and went to the body. He, got, he met with Franz Firstal, who was the only other officer at the body at that time, uh, took Firstal's Polaroid photographs and ordered Firstal away from the body back to the park. Now look at the... As you'll see from the, the, the that triangular shape, that is, those are berms. And you can see at the bottom is the parking lot. Now from the parking lot to when you can see all the way at the top there, the little X that says body, 
you can't see the body. It's it's uh, it, it's it's way back behind some woods. Right. Just, just for people who don't know, Fort Marcy got its name as a Civil War fort. It was built out of berms and large trunks of trees, and you can still see that today. And I think they even have a couple old, like military art artillery pieces there, or used to. So it definitely has that feel. And so what you have to think if if uh, Vince Foster killed himself. He parked in that parking lot with no car, but he walked all the way through the park, all the way back to the other end of the park, and then crossed over the berm and then uh, supposedly shot himself. So it's in a, the remotest part of the park, which you can actually enter from the back, I think, my understanding, is there's like yeah, a service right back there. Yeah. Okay, of course, Kevin, I didn't say anything about the back entrance in his report, but yeah, you can. In any event, uh, back to this uh, map and this uh, minute by minute. Uh, again, we have Robert Edwards at the body site and Franz Furstel, so U.S. Park Police officer, took a couple of Polaroid photographs. Edwards took his photographs, said so go back to the parking lot. So he, Edwards is alone at the body. Now, if we go to the next page. Yeah, that one. Uh, Edwards had been alone with the body for 15 minutes. And during that time, he replaced the saw the uh, semi-automatic pistol that had been in Mr. Foster's hand, which had been placed there by U.S. Park Police Officer Kevin Forchel. And he uh, placed a uh, an old, uh, untraceable 1913 revolver in his hand loaded with high-velocity ammunition. Then he turned, which we'll talk about this a little bit later, he turned the head to the left and uh, blood had accumulated in, in Foster's uh, mouth. Remember, he shot the neck and he had the blood come over from the uh, from the mouth to 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 uh, uh, drain over the bullet wound in his neck to try and conceal the existence of the bullet wound in his neck. So. Uh, uh, we'll talk about that. Uh, we've got some uh, more diagrams about exactly how he did that a little bit. John, 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 wait a minute. Yeah. Can I say something? Sure. I mean, I've been, I, you've been doing you've been doing great without me so far. So I've just been listening. But with this particular page here, we we made a mistake on this page. This is this is not this is uh, you know that that book we uh, twerked document was five hundred and ten pages. And there's bound to be a mistake somewhere. And uh, when we did this, this was the best information we had at the time. But when we got Miguel's memo that we found at the uh, archives, that 30-page memo that you mentioned that you attached to the uh, the uh, Judiciary Committee, uh, uh, we gave that document. In that 30-page memo, Miguel said that the, the gun was brought to the scene by Rolla, Braun, and Simonello, and, and that they brought that gun up to the body and placed the gun in the hand and retook the photographs. And they moved the body. And this is Miguel said this on tape. We have on tape. He said they moved the body. It was on the berm, with, you know, in a 45-degree angle with the feet down, the head up. And they pulled it up onto level ground. And that's when more blood flowed. That's what happened. It wasn't Edwards alone who replaced the gun. And, uh, and and move the head. We 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 thought that at the time we were close, but we just I don't think we could even hardly believe that a whole group of park police officers did it together. Uh, but in fact, they did. And there was Rolla was there, Braun was there, Simonello was there, and I think Edwards and and maybe perhaps even Doctor Hout. Uh, Miguel said that on his uh, on his on the audio tape to Reed Irvine. He said that 
that Howell was there and saw the body in two positions. So there was a group of people. It was a community effort to uh, replace that gun, which you were correct. They replaced the gun. But they were all there. And when we wrote this one page, uh, you know, we were this was not exactly correct here. But it was the best we had at the time. It's pretty close. But uh, we were right that the police put the gun in the hand. We just didn't know how many of them participated. Is that okay if I add that? Sure, it's okay if you add that. I, again, I will continue to disagree uh, with, uh, with with Miguel. I know Miguel had a, a grand jury and he had testimony, but we have uh, these records. I, I think we're right, but we could be wrong anyway. The, the point is that the uh, that the police replaced the gun. Exactly, uh, exactly. We know that much, and, and that's that's clear. Yeah, that's clear. Uh, so let's go to the next page. Now, this is... Uh, this is the way Kavanaugh wrote this report. We have these topics here, this heading here, the wound, the wound, the, uh, we talked about a little bit, the gunshot residue, that is smoke or, or, or uh, uh, consumed and unconsumed gunpowder particles, the gun, blood, and photographic evidence. So what Kavanaugh did was, he had a lot of information in here, but as he spread it all out, so look at the photographic evidence. It's like two; it's in two different places. He doesn't discuss all this all this stuff in the in the uh, in a photograph. I mean, in the photograph section of his report, he spreads it all out, so it's much much more difficult to find. So, but it's doable. We went through and we got it, uh, and that's what uh, this is the way that we. Uh, you know, this is what we came up with. It's this stuff is spread out and it's hidden in the 114-page report. A lot of it's left out, as we'll see. But what but what isn't left out is hidden by his uh, putting it in footnotes uh, throughout his 114-page report. So let's look at the next uh, the next page. Now this is a testimony of Richard Arthur. He was one of the first uh, uh, paramedics to view the body. And he's talking about this neck wound. Another thing that Rodriguez concluded in his 30-page memorandum was that four fire rescue department workers all said that they that they had a uh, that they saw the bullet wound in Mr. Foster's neck. Uh, uh, but we didn't know that at the time. But here's what we we did know. We know that Richard Arthur, we interviewed him. Uh, uh, Patrick and Hugh and I, we all went to go visit with him. Uh, we were tailed by some FBI agents, but that's another story. So um, in any event, uh, here's, here's uh, Richard Arthur's testimony. Let me ask you this. If I told you that there was no gunshot wound in the neck, would that change your view as to whether or not it was suicide? Now, he's under oath. His answer, no. What I saw was what I saw. I saw blood all over the right side of the neck from here down, uh, uh, all over the shoulder. And I saw a small, what appeared to be a small gunshot wound here near the jawline. Fine. Whether the coroner's report says that or not, fine. I know what I saw. There was a bullet wound. Um, oh, uh, let's go to the next page, if you don't mind. Nope. Now, this is now all of these pages that we're talking about are all excerpts, are all taken from this 540 page report using 184 federal government investigative records. We, we, didn't, we didn't use our own records, 
We use the federal government records to prove their own cover-up. So here on page, uh, this following page, we're talking about this is on the in the autopsy section. This is what Kavanaugh wrote. Officer Morissette's report. Uh, the Officer Morissette had attended the autopsy. Report on the autopsy state, and he's quoted. After briefing him with the available evidence surrounding the crime scene, the victim, he started the autopsy on the victim. Well, yeah, I don't know why Officer uh, Borset wrote that. Maybe he was told to write that. But the very, and that's, this is what I, what I just read you was what Kavanaugh wrote. The very next sentence in Morissette's report says, prior to our arrival, the victim's tongue had been removed as well as parts of the soft tissue from the palate. The official, the evidence of the official entrance room, the official entrance room area had been removed by the time they got there. And also we know from other, from other reports, by the time they got there, uh, Mr. Foster had a, like a coat hanger uh, showing the trajectory through his head, showing the trajectory of the bullet. So essentially, it was over by the time the police got there. But that, you wouldn't know that from Kavanaugh. Uh, let's go on to the next page. Now this this is a uh, this is the the as you can see it's a it's a graphic of uh, of the bullet trajectory. And here's the bullet trajectory. The official bullet trajectory is the one that's in that dotted line. Well, behind it. Behind, you'll see what's labeled there. One is the soft palate. We talked about this a little bit earlier. And this is oropharynx. The oropharynx is not in the same area as the soft palate. So what did Kavanaugh do? Instead of choosing between the soft palate and the oropharynx, he put it in his, in his report, it was both. So it, it, it wasn't both. Now let's go on to the next page. Now, we had an exemplar weapon. I can't find it, but we got a weapon. And, and uh, we showed how it was that these powder debris, the smoke debris, uh, uh, consumed and unconsumed gunpowder got on Foster's hands and the position his hands were had to have been in when it happened. And the way that we did that was we know the length of the, uh, we know of the description of where the, uh, the gunpowder was. And so we know that it came from the barrel cylinder gap. Now, a barrel spins around, of course, and it's got two areas where it's open, one in the back and one in the front. The one in the front puts out a lot more smoke and unconsumed and consumed gunpowder, uh, debris comes out of the front. So, uh, and then you, at the bottom of this page, you'll see uh, that we have uh, Dr. Byers drawings of the gunshot residue on his hands. Now let's go to the very next page. See, there's another photo, another, this is our drawing of where he described the gunshot. Let's go to the next page. Right, GSR is gunshot residue, right? Yeah, yes, uh-huh. This is how Vincent Foster's hands were when the weapon was fired. He was pushing it away from him. Uh, and we know that because we got the exemplar weapon and we had what I showed you before, we put these little uh, pieces of glass uh, where the gunshot residue would have been. So we know where his hands were when the gun weapon was fired. Now, according to uh, the uh, uh, official version, Vincent Foster would have had, to, he wouldn't pull the trigger. He would have his hands like that, so he would have to have pushed it with his thumb. He wouldn't pull the trigger, he'd push it. Very unusual. Not un but but and, and given 
the, the powder burns on his hand, the powder debris on his hands, the gunshot residue, we know that the thumb was too far away to even pull, push the trigger. It could not have happened. It's not unusual, not unlikely. It's impossible. It could not have happened. Now, let me tell you one kind of uh, brief uh, story about when accuracy mean and read Irvine were putting on a, uh, a uh, symposium. And it was in a hotel in Washington. There really it was a very large room. There was over 100 people. There were really quite a few people. And Bill O'Reilly was on the panel. And so he gave some, some speech about Vincent Foster. And, and he said, among other things, he said, he said, well, you know, I'd report on it if you had a smoking gun. So at the question the time, question period, I went up there and, and it's on C-SPAN. You can see it on C-SPAN. I held this up and I said, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit had just released this just six weeks ago, six weeks after the release. And I went through this. It was not unusual. It was not, it was not uh, unlikely. It would have been impossible for the smoke coming out of the gun. So I said, well, Mr. O'Reilly, is, is that, uh, would that fit your definition? Or I assume that that fits your definition of a smoking gun. And I said, and so the, the crowd was behind me. They were with me. Uh, and uh, so I, and so he, you know, gave sort of a, a non-answer. I said, well, here's the thing. I'll give you a copy of it. Will you read it? And he said, I'll look at it. He's not going to, he's not going to read this, Bill O'Reilly. He's the whole that's, like, that's the common theme in this whole situation is the willful blindness, the willful, deliberate ignorance of facts around the case. Would you agree with yeah, that, John? Absolutely. And the uh, let me tell you a little bit about the independent counsel statute before Congress decided to kill it uh, or not renew it. Um, all you have to do, you don't have to be a journalist, you could be anyone, any, any citizen calls up the office of independent counsel or the clerk's office at the court and gives your name and address. And when that uh, 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 report comes out, you are uh, you get a copy of it. You don't have to pay for it. All you have to do is keep your name and address. When it comes out, they'll mail it to you. So of course, uh, th throughout the country, uh, every news organization put their name on that list. They all got it. Not one of them reported that evidence of a co of a murder cover up was ordered to be attached to the office of the independent. It was news suppression on a grand scale. It really, really was something. Anyway, uh, let's go on to the next page. You have uh, yeah, the next page. John, where can people get this PDF document? Is this available to the public, or is this some internal document F that you have? FBICoverup.com. So it's, it's on there. there. It's on your website somewhere. Okay. It's on there. And, the and it's, yeah, it's there. And the uh, it's 540 pages. But what we did was we took 160 pages. So get put a kind of uh, uh, it took out. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of the minutiae. There was a lot page. of at the bottom. Yeah, it's on the homepage. So, so I go. It's on the homepage, right? Is that what you said? Go to the homepage. Uh huh. Scroll all the way down to the bottom. And that's it's it, right, right here. here. On the left hand and the on the. That's it. Okay, side. so people can find it here. Let me put that up with there. Some somebody asked. Okay, sorry to interrupt. Please. So continue. that's right. Uh, 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 we also have two versions of it. If we don't want to read the five hundred forty pages, we. Uh, uh, Right, so if they're really enterprising, they, they're really enterprising. They can read the 540 pages, right? Or they can read the 160 pages, the excerpts that I took out of it and uh, collected and put them together. But even if they have the 540 page, almost every chapter has a summary at the beginning of the evidence. Uh, so it, you know you can get through it pretty quickly, uh, just by you can just read the summary. 
and then read a couple of chapters that don't have summaries, and you'll have uh, kind of all of the information. And I mean, it's pretty the, incredible. You've been working on this case almost a quarter century. Like, it's really, I mean, well, really you have my, just, I, I was full-time on this case for about seven years, uh, almost full-time, certainly full-time for the first four years, and maybe part-time for three years. But uh, since then, I have not, uh, I'm not working on it, with the exception of every once in a while, let uh, the powers of be, you know, provide them with the evidence and see if anybody wants to. It's like a, it's a weapon sitting here just to be picked up and nobody's picked it up yet, but I'm not going to give up. I'm not giving up. So anyway, let's, yeah. But before you, you know, there's a, you could, you could go on and on with the, with the, the evidence, but what, what I think is important and you say it, I always say it so well is, is, is why this is important and why it matters in relation to, to our government and to our, our, our news media and our country. What, why, why should people care about this? Well, I think, yeah, that is a, I, that's, that's the big, I, that's I the big issue. That is a big issue. And I probably should have uh, 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 highlighted that at the beginning, but we're going through the evidence because I don't want anybody to watch this and say, well, he, he didn't prove it. I'm proving murder cover up okay. Uh, okay. Uh, Kavanaugh right here. And now that's why I'm, that's why I insisted on having a long, uh, uh, a long uh, uh, interview because I don't want to just come in and tell the people about the, murder cover-up. I want to prove it to them. But back okay. to your question, Hugh, I think that's a good one. I think we should talk about that now. Well, let's just think, suppose the, the news media had done what they were supposed to have done and didn't suppress the evidence. What would that mean? Well, for start, for one thing, it, it we wouldn't have had Bill Clinton uh, uh, the second term. We just wouldn't have. It wouldn't have, there wouldn't have been a murder. It wouldn't have won re-election. He might have even resigned. Who knows? But he wouldn't. So they're taking away our history. Now, if Bill Clinton hadn't, hadn't had a second term, Hillary Clinton wouldn't be the uh, the nominee. And if Hillary Clinton hadn't been the nominee, we wouldn't have Donald Trump. Now, so they're taking away our history from us. This is history. They, they get these journalists are getting paid big money to look the other way when history is happening in front of them. So a, another thing, another reason, maybe even more sort of broad, more important reason as to why this matters is because the experiment of our founding fathers was to have, the, as I said in this uh, in the video, is to have one uh, a branch of government exercise jurisdiction over another. And as I said, they're not doing that. What they're doing is uh, they're, uh, they're, they're not pursuing different interests. They're all pursuing the same interests, and that is credibility. Now, why do you think that nobody is going to, or the news media didn't report about this agenda, but I sort of kept this, kept this murder cover-up from the American people for all these years. Well, because they joined in. It was four years of them acting uh, uh, like a, uh, you know, a, a public oh, relations. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it was just, it's absolutely unbelievable uh, how they did. And it was, again, the longest sustained press leak in U.S. history. Uh, um, and it was live propaganda after propaganda after propaganda. I mean, it's just, so that's why we should care about this, is because our, the experiment of our founding fathers is, is an issue here. Right. Uh, it's, it's about failing. the third. It's about the judiciary and the fourth estate. It's about the how accurate these people are and what their attachments are to political parties. That's really it's the current issue right now. So it goes back to Vince Foster probably earlier than that. A lot of these people are 
I mean, you mentioned Isakoff and some of these other characters. They're just are. I mean, to me, they're not uh, independent journalists. No, they're not. Yeah, well, it tells, it tells us that they, we cannot trust our news media. We cannot trust the people where, that we get our information from. We cannot trust them, even when the cover-up is obvious. We can't trust the news media. We can't trust the uh, ju- Justice Department to, to, to do oversight and to do proper investigations. We can't trust the Congress to do oversight. We can't trust the government or the news media in this country at all. Not look at, at all. Look at the issue of vote fraud. I mean, it's obvious vote fraud, and the ju- Department of Justice just ignored it. So these aren't the first events, and this is just one. And sadly, the Vince Foster case, to me, is just one in a long line of uh, abuses of power. So it's uh, it's really sad. It's really kind of a sad case that, and to me, he was probably one of the good guys, probably like Miguel Rodriguez, probably trying to do the right thing as an attorney and just got crushed by this huge system and had to leave. All the good, I mean, and Kavanaugh just went along with, to me, he was just another person who was uh, be very comfortable within the system and doing what he's told, and he, he and it paid off for him over the long term, I would say. I, I was like the mentioned uh, David Martin's book, The Murder of Vincent Foster. Yes, yeah, okay. we have. Yeah, it's we had we did it, but I did briefly mention at the intro that you and I did an interview about that book, right? So people can go back and yeah, do that's that. a good that's a, that's the latest uh, latest thing that's been written on the case. That's probably the best book on the case is the The Murder of Vincent Foster by David Martin. And you guys were all there from the beginning, all there, right there, 93, 94, 95, all D.C. I mean, Dave Martin went by D.C. Dave, and I used to read him when I was in D.C. Dave Martin was the first, uh, William. He he went to college with with Foster, and from the very beginning, he was picking apart the news reports, and and it didn't didn't make sense to him what the news reports said. I came in a a year later uh, in 1994. I just... I was uh, well. I was. I guess the first day after, I was a little puzzled. I wondered who found the body because it didn't. The newspaper said it was an anonymous passerby, and that didn't make sense to me. But uh, eventually, I found out that it was the two park maintenance workers that found the body, and that's not the official story. But the uh, that so I came in a year later, and I think John, you came in in '95 when Patrick was harassed. Is that right? October 27, 1995. Yeah. Yeah. Was that so? Yeah, so, so yeah, it's here's, just... here's, uh, here's the murder of Vince Foster uh, by David Martin and of uh, uh, information in it. And also, uh, another thing that it has in it that a lot of people don't know is it really outs Christopher Ruddy, uh, who is now the CEO of Newsmax. We kind of wonder how he got the money for that. Well, I think we, we kind of have, maybe have a pretty good idea. Uh, but you put yourself in the position of the bad guys. Justice Department. What are you going to do? There's a, there's not much by way of internet back in '93 through '95, um, and they're cer- they certainly had a uh, had their uh, you know their propaganda arm, the news media and mass. But there was still a lot of information out there uh, that people had questions about. There was still you know something something fishy. So what would you do if you were the bad guys? What you would do is you would get a journalist. To lead the parade and fumble at the gun at the uh, at the goal line, and that's exactly what Christopher Reddy did. His book, 
the strange death of Vincent Foster, uh, fits together with Kavanaugh's report, which is right here, like a glove. It fits just like this. It's like written together. And uh, Christopher Ruddy, um, I was sticking up for him, even when he was bad-mouthing me, thinking that he was just paranoid. But he told Hugh to stay away from me uh, and, and uh, to stay away from Patrick. Yeah, but and wasn't – what? sorry to interrupt, but wasn't Ruddy having meetings with Sessions or something like that? Yes, he, he was yeah, literally I, had I used some to drive connection to his house to the very head top of the FBI, who suspiciously gets uh, into power the day after Foster died. Right? Well, he he uh, he was I gone the day before Foster died. Day before, sorry. Right, but when Ruddy was Ruddy used to stay at my house, and he would ask me to drive him over to Sessions' house. He he told me that he was going to meet with Sessions' wife Alice. He said she was interested in the case, but I. I no longer believe that. Right. Yeah. Ruddy, was, he, was, he had me fooled. My wife wasn't fooled, though. She told me she didn't like his face right out of the gate. And I said, well, you don't know the guy. How can you say you don't like him? She said, I don't trust him. He has a bad face. And yeah, I'd learn one thing out of this case. You better listen to your wife when she tells you somebody's got a bad face. We yeah, well, Ken Starr went on to – he was the defense attorney for Epstein. So Starr, you know, his, his career is not uh, – it's not that clean, I would say, in my opinion. Um, before, we're kind of almost at two hours, guys. I think you should both kind of, if you can, John, just have some concluding statements. Promote your website. Where can people reach out to you, et cetera? I think we could probably do another two hours just on the evidence alone. There's just so much evidence of just contradictions and problems with the official record. Yeah, I, I would, I would, I'll uh, try and wrap it up. Uh, you, can, you can go to FBICoverup.com. Everything is at that website. Uh, thanks to Hugh, who's been putting it up. And also, you can uh, contact me through my website. Uh, it's uh, John H. Clark, C L A R K E Law.com. But before I leave, I want to talk a little bit about Ken Starr. Uh, uh, first off, I want to say that there are only two books. Uh, of the, what, two dozen to you uh, or more books that have been written that include the Vince Foster death in it, um, there are only two. One of them is The Secret Life of Bill Clinton. About a third of the book is devoted. That's by Ambrose Evans Pritchard, who we talked about. Um, and also the other one is The Murder of Vince Foster. Those are the only two books that are worth reading. Uh, and of course, we encourage you to read the appendix uh, that we had. But let me just uh, uh, continue on. Let me just say a couple of words about Ken Starr. Okay. Ken Starr, uh, I have another book here, Violated, Exposing Rape at Baylor University of Med College Football Sexual Assault Crisis. Well, Ken Starr was the uh, chancellor uh, uh, during this. And each one of these tabs is something that reflects badly on Ken Starr. But the authors, two authors, they did a great job. But their conclusion was they didn't know if Ken Starr knew about that. But if he didn't, he should have. So uh, doesn't that sound kind of familiar? It does to me. And, but in, uh, in Starr's, in the Foster case, we have this 30-page memorandum that is, that I gave to, that's on the website that Starr received, talking about all these different aspects of a cover-up. Uh, that was written by Miguel Rodriguez. So he's not gonna, uh, you know, he he's not gonna skate by like he did at the rape crisis at Baylor University. Now let me read you uh, just what what Ambrose Evan Pritchard in this book, The Secret Life of Bill Clinton, had written about Ken Starr. 
He will never confront, he says, one thing can be predicted without absolute certainty. He will never confront the U.S. Justice Department, the FBI, and the institutions of permanent gov government in Washington. His whole career has been built on networking by ingratiating himself. His natural lo loyalties lie with the political legal fraternity that covered up the Foster case in the first place. One more paragraph. Pontius Pilate of the Potomac is how Starr is described in a blistering denunciation by James Davidson, the editor of the newsletter Strategic Investment. Starr will fade, quote, quoting, Starr will fade, but he will not be forgotten. Historians will certainly have something to say about him when the decline and fall of the United States is written. Starr will merit a chapter. He will be seen as a weak, temporizing man who lacked the force of character to confront a corrupt system. He's inside. He's he's uh, inside the Beltway mentality. Uh, no more Watergates. Uh, if it's really uh, makes the, the government and the news media and the Congress look bad, uh, then we need to stay away from. It. That's their sort of the inside the Beltway mentality. Truth be damned. Gotcha. And that's a great way to end it, John. This is your website right here. So if people want to reach out to you, ask you any additional questions where they can read all your material that you've compiled over a quarter century, they could find it there. He, would you like to finish up? You want to promote your book that John uh, just promoted? I just, I just, uh, I, I like people to come to the website, fbicoverup.com. There's a, a number of tabs across the top. There's uh, a lot of documents there, all the documents you want to find, but there's also some good stuff on the press. There's a whole section on the press and uh, if you go in uh, at the top uh, along the tabs there, there's one called Inside Stories. And if you if you click that, there's a whole bunch of postage stamp size things there. You see that uh, FBI document that had to do with the uh, sexual uh, stuff, uh, sexual child abduction. Uh, there's a whole series of uh, stuff on Christopher Ruddy. Uh, in, the, in the role of the press is, is pretty heavily covered in the back here. But uh, th yeah, that's really the key to the sorry case. Sorry to interrupt, but I also interviewed uh, Dean Arnold about this book as well. Oh, yeah, Dean is, Dean's, Dean's a good guy, yes. That's a good book. We'll put that one up there. Right, thanks <laughs> so, for having us uh, again, William. Yeah, pleasure. well, I'll have to have you back. We'll do it again and uh, take take more time and get everything ready and a much better. I think that uh, there's just a lot more to talk about. I think we can go through the case in greater detail. Maybe we'll have a part two and uh, – really kind of cover some stuff that we didn't cover today. But thank you so much for your time again. It's John H. Clark and Hugh Turley, who was the author of uh, The Murder of Vince Foster with uh, DC Dave or Dave Martin. Thank you so much for your time. Stay there, guys. I'm going to end the broadcast. Thank you, buddy.